Let's open the precious Word of God to the first chapter of Romans. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Your ideas of true religion and my ideas of true religion all together amount to vanity and less than vanity. It is what God's Word tells us that we are to believe and to tear down every stronghold and every imagination in our heart or mind that would mount itself against the declarations of Holy Scripture. We thank Thee, O Lord of heaven and earth, for having given us Your Word and for the truth that it contains. And bless us now to rightly divide those words that we might know Thee, that we might know man, and that we might know the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Romans chapter 1, we have come now to the 18th verse where we take up the Apostles' first argument. And this argument will run with smaller, lesser arguments all the way to the 20th verse of the third chapter. From 118 to 320 is his argument that all Jews and Gentiles are under condemnation and subject to God's wrath and eternal destruction in the great day of judgment that's coming. This kind of material is really no longer taught because it's the wrath of God and people don't like the wrath of God. It doesn't, it doesn't make for happy services for those who don't really love God, and, and so they just avoid it. Because it's hard to build a church with thousands of people if you're going to preach about the wrath and hatred of God and His judgment and a coming day of judgment when He's going to tear sinners into shreds from the inside out. It's just not conducive to church growth. Especially when that church growth is dependent upon thousands of carnally minded Christians at best and mostly unregenerate. At worst. But it's, it, it's part of the Word of God, and it's going to be covered here for two chapters, and we better delight in it. Right. Without knowing the truth of Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20, you can't fully appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation by Him. Right. Until you fear the wrath of God and see that you deserve it, and that His judgment's going to hold you accountable and condemned, You can't fully appreciate the salvation of verse 16 and the justification of verse 17 that we covered last Lord's Day. But here we are. We stand before God's Word, and it tells us the absolute truth about Him, about all men, and about the knowledge that He gave them, and about what He thinks of them sinning against that knowledge, and how He proceeds to judge them with some judgment in this world of rewiring their little heads and of judgment to come at the great day of judgment. Let me read the first few verses down through verse 23 of this section, and we shall see how far we can get. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because 
that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Amen and amen. This is their crime. The judgment proceeds in the 24th verse. But this is their crime. God revealed himself to them. They did not give him glory, nor were they thankful for all that he did for them. And we belong in this passage with them. Were it not for the grace of God to have called us out of this world, there is nothing in your natural abilities or your natural affections that would have caused you to love the God of glory. You would have hated Him, and you would have corrupted His religion, and you would have corrupted the knowledge about Him as quickly and as thoroughly as these men have, were it not for His grace. But we belong here, and the apostle must take two chapters to review condemnation with people who are saved in order for them to properly get the doctrine of salvation straight, lest they add to it the works of the law, or lest they add to it any other imagination that they might come up with. So though Paul has commended this audience, the saints in Rome, beloved of God, whose faith was known throughout the whole world, though he has commended them, He must take two chapters to preach to them about the condemnation and wrath of God in order for chapters 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 be meaningful to them in understanding their salvation. So we start with condemnation and then we understand salvation properly. But thanks be to God, He did give us verses 16 and 17 before we dive in to this dark abyss of condemnation. Aren't you thankful for 16 and 17? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Those two verses tell me that there are just men on earth who are covered and clothed in the righteousness of God and unto whom the power of God was exerted to save them and they are known by their faith, which is an evidence of that salvation and that justification. And with that summary hint of salvation, we dive into condemnation in the 18th verse. The Apostle is first of all going to show all Gentiles condemned. 
It begins with this verse, chapter 1 and verse 18, and runs through chapter 2, verse 16. And then in verse 17 of chapter 2, he takes up the Jews. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and he will deal with them according to the law, the written law that God had given them. They had superior advantage to the Gentiles, but they sinned worse than the Gentiles, as we'll get to in time. The Lord willing. I want you to remember four things as we start proceeding through these two chapters. Four things, four ways God communicates with men. Number one is creation. And I want to introduce it now so that you're constantly thinking about it as you read these two chapters. One is creation. Two is providence. Three is conscience. Four is revelation or scripture. Creation, providence, conscience, and scripture. Creation, verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Providence. What is God's providence? It's his government of the affairs of the universe that result in very specific things being done. Either a blessing in your life or punishment in your life. His providence is how he governs the use of the sun, rain clouds, and other secondary means in his universe to bring things to pass in men's lives. And God has left, has not left himself without a witness in the earth by his providence. His providence shows that he is a good, benevolent being, and he fills men's hearts with gladness. And when that gladness is in their hearts, they ought to be giving thanks to the God who arranged it for them to have that goodness and gladness. It's the 21st verse that says, neither were thankful. Neither were thankful for what? The creation? No, the providential arrangement of that creation to bring gladness into their hearts. They weren't thankful for it. There's providence. We're going to get to conscience in chapter 2. And then we're going to get to Scripture in chapter 2 and 3 as the Jews are dealt with since they were the ones that had God's Scriptures. By four preachers, by four messages, by four different vehicles, God has addressed the human race. And we are held accountable for the truth that He has shown us. But for the verses at hand right now, the emphasis is on creation with a secondary emphasis and a minor emphasis on providence, and we're going to take them both up. Because God has created the heavens and the earth and they declare His glory, we should give Him glory. Because He has been benevolent to us and blessed us with so many wonderful things that cause our hearts to be filled with gladness, we should give Him thanks. And men do not do either. And therefore, He's going to hold them accountable. If these two chapters do not condemn you to hopelessness, you are willfully ignorant. But now our hope is in Christ Jesus. But I want you to understand that writing to a church of saints, Paul still had to give these two chapters to make sure they would appreciate the salvation that he described in chapters 3, 4, 5, and so forth. So we follow his course because this is the course God has chosen for us by the inspiration of His Word. 
Let's start with verse 18. And let's start with the first word of verse 18 because it is a coordinating conjunction. A conjunction is a word that connects two sentences or clauses. And four is a coordinating one, meaning that verse 18 is positively related to verses 16 and 17. And the reason it's there, this simple coordinating conjunction, the third one we've had in a row, ties this verse to the verses before it. The value of knowing about God's salvation in verse 16 is based on the wrath that is coming in verse 18. The value of the justification briefly described in verse 17 is dependent upon the wrath coming in verse 18. You would see no need for the salvation of 16 or the justification of 17 without the condemnation of 18. So we have a four there. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Why is it called good news? Why did he want to preach it to the saints in Rome? Because there is wrath coming upon men, and we are as guilty as any other class of men, and we need that salvation. And that salvation becomes precious the more you understand his condemnation and his wrath. The faith of the just, the last idea of verse 17, the previous verse, is needed to survive the lesson. The just shall live by faith. We can read verses 118 through 320 and survive the lesson because we have faith. We have faith in the God that saves in verse 16 by His power through Jesus Christ. And we have faith in the God who clothes men with the righteousness of God by Jesus Christ from verse 17. That's why we have the word for there. Every word of God is pure. It's a coordinating conjunction. We are thankful for verses 16 and 17. We delight in those verses because it saves us from all that follows. Thank you, blessed God. If it wasn't for those two verses, we find ourselves in verses 118 through 320, totally condemned and without hope and God in the world. Because we have rejected Him by nature and we are the children of wrath by nature. The next few words. For the wrath of God. And let's take a few minutes on the wrath of God. Brethren, as I studied this subject, I was burdened by the fact that it could take a couple of sermons in itself to rightly understand the wrath of God because it is not taught today, because our heart doesn't like this subject very much, and because we need it to fully appreciate the salvation that is taught in this epistle. And Paul is going to pour it out on these men. Listen, the wrath of God in this chapter and the next chapter, because the next chapter refers to the coming day of judgment when all the secrets of men shall be judged by Jesus Christ. That's the day of judgment. But before we get to die, before we get to die and face that judgment, he judges men in this world by rewiring their little brains. And it is one horrific judgment. And He will rewire ours. And we have seen some brethren rewired before our very eyes because they have rejected some of the message taught by this book. There's judgment right here in this chapter. He gives us over to a repro, He gives men over to a reprobate mind. He gives men over to the lust of uncleanness through their own hearts to dishonor themselves among themselves. That is horrific. 
He will rewire your brain to dishonor yourself before all other men who are looking at you and saying, what in the world? If you reject the truth that he gives you. That's verses 24, 26, and 28. In the mouth of three witnesses, let every word be established. There is one angry God that we must deal with. And thankfully, Jesus, our Savior, has dealt with them. The wrath of God was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him instead of you or me. And we are saved. And yet, the Apostle wants us to take in every word and every syllable of the judgment that he is going to pronounce by the inspiration of God upon Gentiles and Jews alike, so that we are left totally dependent upon the sovereign grace of God for salvation. Amen. You, will, you will have to submit to the sovereignty of God and free grace in order to be saved by the time he gets done in verse 20 of chapter 3. For the wrath of God. It's not a popular subject, but it is a subject taught throughout the Bible. And it is certainly taught more than the love of God. That doesn't mean it's more important than the love of God. It just means there is something wrong in most pulpits when the love of God is the emphasis of almost every sermon and you hardly hear about the wrath of God. I can't get out of Genesis chapter 2 before I find God telling Adam... A sinless man in a sinless world that if he eats the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's going to die for it. That's the anger of God against sin. I get into chapter 3 and find out Adam eating the fruit off that tree and God condemning him and all of his descendants, including you and me, to a life of hard labor before we get to die because of that one sin. I find him cursing women that when they go into labor and conceive children and give birth to children is going to be a painful, sorrowful event in their lives because of them listening to the devil. I find the devil, some sort of a glorious being, put down his belly without legs to to wriggle around in the dust of the earth because of the anger of God against sin. I get to chapter 6 and I find the earth being suffocated in water. That means to drown in water of all ages and of all kinds of men because of God's anger against sin. I go to the book of Revelation, and in the 22nd chapter, just as about as I'm getting to the Amen to close out the book of God, the Bible, it says, if a man adds to my words in this book, I will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Now that's the anger of God against sin. And if a man takes away from my words in this book, I will take away his portion that he thinks he has in the book of life because I'm going to leave him a reprobate. I go to chapter 19 and I see the Lord Jesus Christ riding upon a white horse that is dripping with red blood and it's not his blood of redemption. It's the blood of his judgment as he tramples his enemies under his feet. And he calls the fowls of the air of heaven to come and feast on the corpses of all his enemies. And he says, I tread the fierceness of the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. It is hard to preach about the wrath of God to people who hardly ever hear about it. We are not Neanderthal cavemen. We are not psychos. We are not sadistic, masochistic, lovers of pain. We are Bible Christians and that's what we shall be. 
And this epistle right now is turning us to the wrath of God with the first few words of Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Because God operates according to His own timing, people think that God isn't angry or full of wrath. But let me tell you from Psalm 7 and verse 11, God is angry with the wicked every day. When a child of God sins, God is angry as a displeased father with that child every day. And if you'll confess your sin, the anger is lifted. How many times did David describe it just that way? But the wicked, the wrath of God, abideth on them. It lives there forever. Lord God, teach us this lesson and do not let it be an intellectual one. Let it be a practical one of the true character of the God of heaven, that we might know Thee as Thou art and serve Thee as we ought. Psalm 50 and verse 20. God's timing is different than yours. You look at others and see them apparently getting away with sin. But God wants you to know something. You sin in your life and you say nothing's happened to me. It's His long-suffering and mercy that is holding back a trembling storm of fury that's about to be unloaded upon your head. But for His grace... Psalm 50, verse 16. Unto the wicked, God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? Or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? What are you doing coming into church if you're going to live wickedly? Seeing thou hatest instruction, and castest my words behind thee. When thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest with him. And hast been partaker with adulterers. Thou givest thy mouth to evil, and thy tongue frameth deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thine own mother's son. These are all wicked sins. Verses 17 down through 20. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright, will I show the salvation of God. There's two things that we want to do. We want to praise God. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. The heavens declare the glory of God from Psalm 19.1. And we want to give Him glory. And how do we do it? We praise Him. We tell Him how great He is. What does the song tell us? Praise Him, praise Him, O Jesus our blessed Redeemer. Praise Him, praise Him. Tell of His excellent greatness. That's how we praise Him and glorify Him. These things hast thou done, and because you got away with them for five minutes, five years, five decades, you thought that I was like you. You thought that I must look at sin like you do. Inconsequential. You're wrong. Consider that I'm going to tear you in pieces, and there will be no one to deliver you. This is the wrath of God. Verse 3 says, Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. 
a fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. This is what the Bible teaches. Most today, most pulpits ignore or reject the wrath of God. They want to promote something, and I'll give you an example, and I've done it many times before. The world's most popular tract, the one that's been printed the most times, is called the Four Spiritual Laws. And law number one, according to this delightful little tract that's had over a billion copies produced, law number one is... God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. When I read the Bible, I find out that God loves Himself and has a wonderful plan for your life to give Himself glory. Because the Lord has made all things for Himself. Yea, even... Here's an extreme case, just to make sure you don't miss the point. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil... Proverbs 16.4. That is the God that we're dealing with. You say, He sounds mean. We sinned. We sinned. Quit trying to blame Him. You're already showing an ugly spirit to even think such a thing. We are the ones that sinned. He is righteous and holy. His anger is pure and righteous and totally justified. It's just amazing that he hasn't let go of the floodgates and washed this earth away yet. But the Bible tells us it's his long suffering that each of you can have an opportunity to repent. Second right. Peter three nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Psalm fifty is going to come to pass. But his long suffering to usward, not willing that any of us should perish, but that we should all come to repentance. He isn't mean. He is the great blessed God of heaven. There is no meanness in Him except against sin and sinners. And therefore it is their fault, not His. And He is just and they are not. To build a church full of carnal Christians or unregenerate hearers, you can't preach about the wrath of God. Look at Psalm 11 because I want you to see what I said a few minutes ago. Psalm 7. And verse 11, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. You know, when the, when the Lord judges the righteous, He is chastening them so that they will not be condemned with the world. There's two kinds of judgment. One is in love. One can be called chastening. One is for the profit of the party to get them to repent. That's how God judges us. Even though severe language is used for it sometimes, like 1 Corinthians 11, it says we can eat or drink damnation to ourselves. That damnation is not eternal damnation. That damnation is temporal damnation of being weak, sickly, or dying prematurely. 1 Corinthians 11. Yet, all that is chastening in order to make a distinction between us and the world that shall be condemned. There is no chastening applied toward them or to them, because they are bastards and not sons, as Hebrews chapter 12 says it in those words. Psalm 7 and verse 11. God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, if that wicked man doesn't turn and repent, he, that is God, will whet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. This is the anger of the Lord. Look at chapter 9, verse 
15. Oh, let's get 14. I wanted to read all of Psalm 9 to you, but do you know what the wrath of God ought to do to a child of God? Sing His praise. Sing His praise. David has so many psalms of praise that are dealing with the wrath of God. Verse 14, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in thy salvation. Romans 1, 16 and 17 are of value. They are precious. They should cause us to praise him because of 18 and what follows. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. Isn't that exciting? The heathen lay traps for men. The heathen dig pits for them. They lay, they, they lay snares and nets. And yet the God of heaven arranges things that they themselves are caught in the net. They themselves fall in the pit. Verse 16, the Lord is known by the judgment which he executed. This is how we know God better, is to learn about the wrath of God. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higion, Selah, meditate on that verse. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Amen. But the needy shall not always, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. This is the word of the Lord, and this is only a small sampling of the word of the Lord. Isaiah 48 and Isaiah 57 would say, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. He has no peace planned for them, but the tempestuous judgment of his wrath. God takes vengeance on his enemies. Can you find the little book of Nahum, the little minor prophet in your Old Testaments? Micah, Nahum. Let me read a few verses from the first chapter where God lays out his burden upon Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Nahum, this is the word of the Lord. It's too bad that these verses weren't being memorized in Sunday school. Nahum chapter 1 verse 1, the burden of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind, and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, 
and the rocks are thrown down by him. That is God's attitude toward the wicked. And those are God's actions toward the wicked. We are in the seventh verse. Thanks be to the grace of God. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Praise the Lord for verses like verse 7 after you read the first six. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God. We want to remind ourselves about the wrath of God. He's not ashamed of it. In Romans 9.21, it says, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another vessel unto dishonor? Amen. Next verse, 22. What if God, willing to show His wrath, He's not ashamed of His wrath. He knows there's no sin in it. He knows there's no injustice in it. It is pure holiness. And pure righteousness that wax hot against, waxes hot against his enemies. What if God willing to show his wrath, and he is indeed willing to show it? The ignorance and rebellion against all that is taught in the Bible about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is typical of men rejecting the knowledge of the wrath of God. Because that great and dreadful day of the Lord was described numerous times in the Old Testament and it's repeatedly described numerous times in the New Testament and it gives us a very current event that took place in the days of the New Testament of God destroying His enemies. The destruction was horrific, but the prophecies were clear. I want to just show you one of them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 2. There's so many. We've been over those before, though. It's just an example of the wrath of God. Jesus told the parable of the householder. And when he concluded, after those husbandmen had killed the son of the householder, he said, what will that man do to those husbandmen? They said, he will miserably destroy them. And give his vineyard to someone else. Yes, that was the correct answer. And it later says that they knew he was talking about them. In that 21st chapter of Matthew. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14 says, Ye brethren became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. The wrath is come, not the wrath shall come, because the wrath shall come is a later dated event, like the second coming of Christ. This is the wrath is come. It sounds just like John the Baptist, doesn't it? Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Because John was 40 years in front of what Paul's describing here. These men crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, killed their own prophets, persecuted the apostles, resisted the gospel, tried to keep it from the Gentiles, were contrary to all men. And a flood 
desolated that city and overwhelmed it. Daniel chapter 9 at the conclusion of that chapter. This is an example of the judgment and wrath of Almighty God against His own people. Before you die, before you get to die, which is a judgment, and go to judgment, which is a judgment, you're going to be judged every which way by the wrath of God. He is able. He is able, brethren. He knows your fears better than you do. He can arrange more circumstances in your life than you can even imagine to bring trouble into your life if you don't fear Him. I don't want to just preach about heathen nations. Otherwise, you'll miss some of the practical import about the wrath of God. We better humble ourselves before this God and give Him glory and thank Him for all that He's done for us in things natural and things spiritual, lest He see our ungratefulness and put a yoke of iron upon our necks until He have destroyed us like He promised His church in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 and 48. That for the abundance of all things, because they didn't serve Him with a glad heart, if you've wandered in here this morning and you're just cast down and you're just soured because something just hasn't gone your way, you are in serious trouble before the God of heaven. Repent right now of your wickedness and get a glad heart and give Him thanks and give Him glory. He has blessed us with so many things. His wrath will be righteous when it comes forth on you. I want to give you a passage in Ezekiel, and you're going to hear it again, but turn to Ezekiel chapter 20. I want to show you God's judgment in the present tense upon men before they get to die, before they get to go to judgment. And I want to give you this because I don't want you to forget it, that long after I'm gone, I want you to remember how far the Bible goes to describe God rewiring men's minds including his own people. You know that we have about an eight-page outline entitled, Is God the Author of Confusion? Which is answered positively that he is indeed the author of confusion. In which there are scores and scores and scores of Bible illustrations and precepts about God blinding men's hearts and minds. I'll give you one. Just to set the stage for the latter part of this chapter about sodomy, and because I don't want you to forget this one, of how serious it is with his own people. Let's not worry about Hittites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. Let's worry about Israelites, and they of the New Testament. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 21. Ezekiel 20, verse 21, Notwithstanding, though God came to them and sent them a message, calling upon them to obey Him and to not be like their fathers, though God did that, notwithstanding, the children rebelled against Me. Ezekiel 20, and verse 21, They walked not in My statutes, neither kept My judgments to do them, which, if a man do, he shall even live in them. They polluted My Sabbaths. Then I said, I would pour out My fury upon them, to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew mine hand and wrought for my namesake that it should not be polluted in the sight of the heathen in whose sight I brought them forth. I lifted up mine hand unto them also in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the heathen and disperse them through the countries. 
because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes and had polluted my Sabbaths, and their eyes were after their father's idols. Wherefore, I gave them also statutes that were not good, and judgments whereby they should not live. And I polluted them in their own gifts, in that they caused to pass through the fire all that openeth the womb, that I might make them desolate to the end, that they might know that I am the Lord. This is God describing His dealings with Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. They were unfaithful in the wilderness, and He was going to destroy them there, but He chose not to, so that the Egyptians could not blame Him for not being able to get His people to the land of Canaan. Then though He showed His hand in a kind way toward them, they rebelled against Him again. He brought them into the land of Canaan, but when they continued to rebel against them, Him, the Lord God gave them bad commandments. He led His people to think that religion was acceptable to take the firstborn children from your wife and offer them in fire to God in order to make them desolate. See, I I don't want to preach Romans chapter 1 and have you just thinking about sodomites. I want to preach Romans chapter 1 with all the wrath of God and how it comes on His own people when they reject the knowledge that He gives them. This was very simple. Keep my Sabbaths, walk in my statutes, and don't go after your father's idols. Is that that plain simple enough? They didn't want to do that. He rewired them. He popped some wires apart, put them together with some other wires, put the wire nut on them that their women would take their children and burn them to an idol. That he might make them desolate. But they were still his children. What was his purpose in all of that? That they might know that I am the Lord. And if you don't want to do things my way, I will let you do things your way but I will help your imagination out just a little bit so that you can dishonor yourself and desolate your own family tree by burning your children in sacrifice. I do not know how to make it any plainer. I wish I did. My Father, you must grip the hearts of these people with this message because I don't know how except to read your word to them. If I get angry at you, you may laugh. Because what in the world can I do to hurt you? But the wrath of one who is omnipotent can cause a whole lot of trouble. The wrath of one who is omniscient and knows everything about your life is horrific. The wrath of one who is perfectly holy so that he doesn't accept something halfway is terrible. And perfectly righteous should cause us to fear an omnipotent, omniscient, holy, and righteous God who is angry against sin, even like this, in his own people. Jesus told his apostles, fear not them which kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power. To cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Luke 12, 4 and 5.
we have a Savior. Amen. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Does Romans 1.16 mean a little more to you? Yes. It mean, I'm loving studying this epistle for you. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed. How could we ever be ashamed of the message of the gospel that God exerted his power to save us from our sins and condemnation through Jesus Christ our Lord? How could we ever be ashamed of such a message? The power of God unto salvation. And therein is the righteousness of God revealed. We are clothed in his righteousness so that he is perfectly accepted. We are perfectly acceptable with him. And he has made an atonement so that we are at one with God. That is glorious news. And that is what the epistle is all about. But for us to appreciate it and for us to hate any false doctrine that would try to make a way of salvation other than through God's power and God's sovereign choice and his decrees and Jesus Christ his Savior. We're going to be cut off at the pass by going through two chapters of this. Because there is no salvation outside the Lord Jesus Christ and God's choice of us in Him. God's justice grinds slow, but it grinds small. He said He would grind them to powder. It took 120 years in the days of Noah, but He drowned the whole earth with a flood. Knowing God's wrath should persuade us to obedience. Psalm 4, 4 says, stand in awe and sin not. That's the effect it should have on us, brethren. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul was motivated and Paul used, Paul was motivated by the terror of the Lord and Paul used the terror of the Lord to persuade men. And right now I'm telling you there is a God in heaven and he is angry against sin and sinners alike. And His wrath is only being held back by His long-suffering to give you a chance to repent. And if you don't repent, He'll unleash His wrath even upon His children. And the wrath that is coming on this world is going to melt everything with fervent heat. And all men are going to stand before the face of Him. And the heavens and the earth are going to flee away from that face. This is the message of the Word of God. It's not taught anymore. We are in a rare minority that are able to hear it. May God give us ears to hear and feet to keep it. Lord, help us. Knowing about God's wrath should move us to joyful singing of praise to our great God, like I showed you in Psalm 9 and verse 11, and the likes of which there are many other psalms that show David praising God for his great wrath. Knowing about your salvation from his wrath is glorious. When God brought forth the angel of the Lord into the land of Egypt, and that angel of the Lord went from house to house to house, And from barn to barn to barn and did not miss a firstborn anywhere. Do you know what the Bible says about the land of Goshen? The dogs weren't even barking that night. There was so much peace in Goshen because the Lord was passing over them. And you better be thankful for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as we sing and as the Bible teaches, when I see the blood... I will pass over you. Praise the God of heaven. Not a dog lifted its voice in Goshen that night. Not even a dog was disturbed by the movement of the angel of the Lord. But there wasn't a house of the Egyptians where the firstborn was not dead in its crib or its bed. Nor in the barns. God took the firstborn of that whole nation as a sacrifice to himself and as a punishment to them for what they had done to his people. And they sat with their sandals on and a staff in their hand 
And they didn't give their bread time to get fully leavened. They ate it with the Passover lamb that night. And then Moses said, it's time. And they went to the promised land. And brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to take us to the promised land. And then all hell is going to fall on earth. Right. And you read it if you read Second Thessalonians chapter 1 last night. And I'm sorry for not making very much progress in the Word of God in Romans chapter 1. But if we don't learn the wrath of God, we can't appreciate the salvation that we have right. in our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1 says, for the wrath of God is revealed. You know where it's revealed? It's revealed in creation, providence, conscience, and revelation especially. Because I've just appealed to revelation. The wrath of God is revealed in the Word of God in all of its detail. But you know what? Even creation. What have pagans always thought When a terrible storm would come, that someone was angry. They knew that it sounded like God was angry. And when it killed some in their village, or it washed a village away, and I am preaching to you on the fifth anniversary of a certain tsunami that took away a couple hundred thousand of Allah-worshipping Muslims and a few vacationers that liked to visit lands of Islam, I am preaching to you on that fifth anniversary And you can go onto your computer or watch the news and see those deluded and blinded people offering their ridiculous sacrifices to their foolish gods that could not deliver them. It's revealed in all these ways. Providence. A child is born deformed. A child is born retarded. A child is killed by a tree limb Falling from a tree. It's revealed in many ways, but the Word of God reveals it the most. Just the giving of the law was so terrible, the Bible tells us that Moses quaked in fear. Just the giving of the law. There was a velvet rope put around, I speak as a banker, there was a velvet rope put around the bottom of Mount Sinai that if even a beast crossed that rope for that teller line, and got on Mount Sinai, it was to be thrust through with darts. And the sound of a trumpet began to sound and get louder and louder and louder, while the whole mountain was shaking and altogether burning like it was a furnace. If you've seen a furnace, that's where heat is created to maximize the melting ability of the, the thing, whatever is put into that furnace for refining. Or to heat a home. You can just imagine the heat and cinders blowing up into the sky as that mountain is a shaking and a burning and the sound of that trumpet gets louder and louder. And the people beg Moses, you speak to us, don't let God speak to us. And even if a beast, if your little puppy dog got near that mountain, it was to be thrust through with darts. That was just the giving of the law. Do you know what it said? He that saith light by his father or his mother, let him be cursed. And all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. How's that for the anger of the Lord? So, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. When I see, when I hear somebody say that, I know they've never read the Bible. They're in love with their own imagination. That's the God of the Old Testament, really. In the New Testament, I read 
for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Hebrews 12, 29. And you say, well, Paul, did, Paul couldn't remember right then that it's not as bad as the Old Testament. No, that's where I'm quoting from about the trumpet sound getting louder and louder and the mountain being on fire and the mountain shaking and Moses being afraid. That's the only place it's taught in the Bible. All those things in one place is Hebrews 12. And in Hebrews 12 it says, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That's where it's taught. Solomon would conclude his inspired philosophy about life with a warning of judgment. Most of you have memorized the 13th verse. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. But verse 14 is, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be bad. The end of the book of Ecclesiastes. The gospel message includes it as well. In Romans chapter 2, verses 2 through 11, it describes the great day of wrath that is coming in which Jesus Christ will judge the secrets of men. It tells His righteousness in His judgment in chapter 3, His sovereign choice in that judgment in chapter 9, and He repeats it in chapter 14 that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul told Cornelius that Jesus Christ had been appointed by God to be a judge of the quick and the dead. The Lord Jesus is not in a manger. He is not helpless on a cross. And He is not an effeminate version of John Lennon in some garden knocking on a door. The Lord Jesus Christ is a judge that is coming to judge the earth. Because God has put all power into His hands to judge all men and angels. And Peter preached that message to Cornelius. How's that for opening up with a man who really wants to hear the gospel? Well, that's how he preached to him. When Paul was taken to Athens on Mars Hill, and he had all those Greek philosophers sitting around him, he said, I want you men to know one thing. God's appointed a day in which He's going to judge the world. And to give you assurance of this fact, He's raised Jesus Christ from the dead who's going to do the judging. Now, is that the way to win friends and influence people? Or is that the way to preach the truth? That's what Paul told the philosophers on Mars Hill. They invited him there not to hear about the wrath of God or the judgment of God. They wanted to hear about the resurrection from the dead. And he said the resurrection from the dead is to show you that the judge that's coming to burn this earth up is the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you to make sure that you know that there's going to be a judgment. Right. Paul's taken captive. And the governor, named Felix, invites him in and brings his wife Drusilla in, who was a Jew. I'd like to hear a little bit more about your religion. Acts chapter 24. Paul reasoned with Felix of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. And what effect did it have on Felix? He trembled. If you're not trembling, you're going to be burned up. If I don't tremble, I'm going to be burned up. We better tremble before reasoning of righteousness, temperance, self-discipline, And judgment to come. Because there's wrath to come. Paul taught in Hebrews chapter 6. That there are fundamental principles of religion. That the Hebrews were in need of going beyond. But do you know what one of them was? Judgment to come. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection. 
not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Those are fundamental principles of our religion. Those are fundamental facts of our doctrine. Those are necessary components of our gospel. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed. And we will look more at its revelation when we come back together. May the God of heaven, whose anger and wrath is never an emotional outburst like ours, foolishly based in unrighteousness, but which is always generated by his holy hatred of sin and his righteous sense of equity, may that anger and wrath be real in our hearts and our minds. May we thank the God of heaven for a Savior named Jesus Christ who took that wrath. Do you know what it tells me about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He began to be very heavy. And God forsook him, and it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. That wasn't for the scourging. That was for the wrath of God that was put upon him so that you could be saved from it. O Father in heaven, bless us by your grace to lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ and to thank thee, O Lord of heaven and earth, for saving us by his willing death for our sins on the cross. And Father in heaven, though we have been adopted and are your children, Yet, let us live in such a way that even your chastening rod needs not to be brought upon us, but that we might feel that warm embrace of your spirit and close fellowship with thee, because we walk in your commandments and keep your precepts and praise your glorious name and give thanks for every good thing we have, both naturally and spiritually. Heavenly Father, let us learn the doctrine of Romans 1. That the whole earth, especially the Gentiles, stands condemned before your holy tribunal of justice. Let us learn the doctrine. But Heavenly Father, let us learn the lesson for our own lives that we will use this day, these assemblies, and our time in your house, around your word, with one another, to glorify thee as obedient children, and that we will walk worthy of the vocation to which we have been called. Hear us as we call upon thee. In Jesus' name, amen.